to prepare ourselves for an election of new elders. And to prepare ourselves for that, we've been working on our voters list, and the wonder is to be a shepherd of God's flock, which is under their care, not because they must, but because they're willing, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to us, but being examples to the flock. This morning, we're going to think more about eldership, but this time the qualifications for eldership. A number of you had told me this week how much you loved the sections I shared from the code last week, or, or maybe I imagined that. But, but anyway, good news, we're, we're going to have one more quick look at the code. Here's what the code says about the qualifications for eldership in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. To be chosen for the office of eldership in the congregation, a person must be a voting member of that congregation and a regular attendant on its ordinances. He should be circumspect and exemplary in conduct both in the church and in the world, of acknowledged piety, endeavoring to maintain the worship of God in his family and held in esteem by the people. Women shall be eligible for election on the same conditions as men. As I read paragraph 31 of the code, it's very evident to me that the people who wrote paragraphs like this knew and relied on God's word. This paragraph is clearly based, I think, on the passage we've just read uh, from Titus chapter 1. Paul is writing to Titus, his understudy, whom he's left to establish a new church in Crete. And he begins his letter. It's very interesting. The first thing he wants to talk about is to give this important advice for anyone establishing a church, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus, there's nothing more crucial in the life of a church than godly leadership. That's what we are interested in here at this point at Hamilton Road, appointing godly elders. In verses 6 to 8, Paul tells Titus what kind of people these elders should be. He gives a long list, actually, of criteria. Uh, I counted 15 in all, but they fall naturally into three little groups. The first group focuses on the elder's home life. The second group gives us an idea of vices that an elder ought not to possess. And the third group focuses on virtues that an elder ought to possess. So let's, let's work our way through this list. First of all, we're told that an elder is to be blameless. That, that one quality actually as, as far as I can see, it's not just one of the list. It's, it's probably the heading for the whole list. Paul's basically saying that an elder should be blameless, and then he goes on to give 14 uh, ideas of what that looks like in practice. He's going to repeat the requirement that they're, they're blameless in verse 7. So I, I think that just reinforces uh, the importance that this really is the overarching idea. So he begins by focusing on the elder's home life, faithful to his wife. That is, has he or she been faithful to his or her spouse? 
does the person whom we're thinking of appointing to leadership have a pure reputation in the whole area of marriage and sexuality? Is this person someone whom you would trust in that regard? I need to pause here for a few moments, don't I? On reading this passage, it seems to be at odds with the teaching of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, which I've just read to you from the Code. There we read in paragraph 31 that women shall be eligible for election on the same conditions as men. Surely Paul's teaching here rules that out. Well, let's pause for a moment to think about that. Paul's writing into a very specific cultural context where three assumptions at least would hold true. Women don't lead. Most men are married. And most men have children. You can see these assumptions clearly in what Paul has to say about who might qualify to lead in the church. Now, I don't want you to mishear me at this point. I'm not saying that Paul's teaching here doesn't apply because it's based on assumptions that he brings from his culture. I'm I'm not saying that. My question is, how does it apply? Do the things that Paul assumes in his time become normative for us in our time? Do Paul's assumptions become our commands? Well, Let's see what life would look like if they did. A single man couldn't be an elder because he's not faithful to his one wife. A married man who has no kids, could he be an elder? He's not a man whose children believe. What about a married man who has kids, but his kids are still very young? How exactly has he demonstrated that his children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient? How old would those children have to be before their dad qualifies on these grounds? What would happen if we appointed a young father to be an elder and then one or more of his children didn't demonstrate belief? or turned out to be wild and disobedient? Would we automatically ask that elder to stand down? Do you see how difficult things become when we make Paul's assumptions normative? Until we're ready to say that a person shouldn't be appointed an elder unless they are male, married, and every one of their kids is full grown with a credible profession of faith, with an unambiguous Christian witness, then we might want to at least be careful in how we apply this text. If Paul's not intending to limit eldership in all times and in all places to married men with mature Christian children, then what does Paul have in mind? How does his teaching apply? It seems to me that he's emphatic that we should consider the character of the person we wish to appoint as an elder, especially in relation to their home life. That's what we're talking about in verse 6. If they're married, are they faithful in their marriage? 
If they have family, are they influential in their home? Do they set an example that people are likely to follow? Folks, I'm very much aware that the question of the role in women in the church can be a difficult one, especially in a church like ours where we're committed to thinking well about God's word. If we don't care about God's word, it doesn't need to be a big issue. If we do care about God's word, it it's actually makes it more uh, of an issue. I'm reminded at this point of advice that I got from my theology professor, Dr. Packer, or, on debates like this. He said that when godly and intelligent people disagree on an area of secondary importance, then be careful of creating controversy and conflict. That sounded like good advice to me back then, a quarter of a century ago, and it still does. Let's think about that for a second. This is an important issue, but it's not a fundamental of the Christian faith. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland sets out only three fundamental doctrines, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of the church. So long as we can agree on who God is, how he has graciously done all things that are needed to reconcile sinful men and women to himself in Christ, and of the role of the church in teaching and living out the gospel, then we have liberty to disagree about a great many things. PCI uses a good phrase. It urges wise liberty of interpretation on secondary issues. So the role that women play in the leadership of the church is clearly an important issue, but it's ultimately secondary. Think for a moment, there are other similar issues. Think for a moment about churches and their views on baptism. Some churches believe that we baptize only uh, believers on profession of their faith. Some churches baptize their children too on the profession of the parents' faith. It would be uncharitable and unwise for churches on either side of that conversation to say that the other church is not biblical. Wise liberty of interpretation seems to me to be the right posture to take. So, if this is a secondary issue, can we allow that wise and godly people might disagree on it? By the way, if you want to read up on the subject, you'll find wise, ungodly people on both sides of the debate. I brought a couple of books along with me to illustrate this. In 1991, John Piper and Wayne Grudem edited this collection. It's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, A Response to Biblical Feminism. Uh, the contributors of this book would contend that the Bible teaches that women should not be appointed elders. There's I don't know, many pages, 566 pages on that particular theme. In 2005, Robert Pierce and Rebecca Merrill, along with Gordon Fee, my New Testament professor, edited this book, Discovering Biblical Equality, Complementarity Without Hierarchy. 
uh, the contributors to this book would contend that the Bible's teaching doesn't preclude women from church leadership. I don't know all the contributors in these two volumes, but I do know some, and I have no doubt that they qualify under Packer's criteria. They're godly and intelligent people. Perhaps I could share my own experience of women elders for one moment. I grew up as a wee boy in a Bible-believing church that didn't have women elders. As a nine-year-old boy, I moved to a different Bible-believing church that did have women elders. That, by the way, was Hamilton Road. Over the years, I've been much blessed by the women, the ministry of women, including their teaching and their leading and their work as elders. I'm grateful to God for that. I've nearly done talking about this important issue, but let me just summarize our present position on this subject. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland has permitted women elders since 1926. The Kirk Session of Hamilton Road has permitted women to serve as elders for a number of decades. I am not quite sure of the precise history, and their service has been a blessing to many of us. In this election, any voting member, male or female, may propose any male or female for the consideration of our Kirk Session. If you're looking for definitive teaching on the role of women in the church, particularly on women elders, I'm sure I haven't satisfied you this morning. I wasn't trying to. If this is still exercising your mind, then do the work. Read the books, get a handle on the good and godly arguments on both sides of the debate. But do this, please. Please continue to prize the unity in the gospel that we have and exercise wise liberty of interpretation on secondary issues. Okay, enough about gender for today. Let's keep going. Do his or her children believe? There's a clear logic here. John Stott puts it like this. He says, the elder can hardly be expected to win strangers to Christ if they fail to win those who are most exposed to their influence, their old children. While there's a clear logic here, I'd urge you to take care in the application. Think of Samuel, the first of the, the Old Testament prophets. Despite Samuel's evident faithfulness to God, we read in Scripture that his sons did not follow in his footsteps. Samuel was never dismissed from leadership for that reason. While Paul's drawing our attention to the response our children make, the emphasis here is on the parent. Are they doing all they can to see their child come to faith? As we read on, a man whose children are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. I'd probably have to stand down as an elder if, if we interpreted this in a particular way. This, this follows on from the previous idea and it needs the same care in our application. Look at verse seven. Since an overseer or elder manages God's household, he must be blameless. 
Previous versions of the NIV, maybe you're using one this morning, talk about the leader in the church being entrusted with God's work. But this latest translation is very helpful in that it shows us that Paul has in mind the domestic steward. In the particular Greco-Roman culture of that day, wealthy households would often have a steward, uh, a household manager, someone who looked after the affairs of the household. It's an extremely important job. It's, it's basically a delegated management of the whole household. The elder, says, God, or says Paul, is to be a steward in God's household. Jesus is the only head of the church, but he delegates the day-to-day running of the church to elders. Do you see now how the stuff that we're reading in verse 6 flows very naturally into verse 7? If a person isn't able for the management of their own household, how can they care for God's? So let's pause for a moment here. This is the second time we've come across this word translated as blameless. We're not talking about perfection here. That would rule out every last one of us, our existing elders in any prospective elders. Nobody could serve if perfection's the standard. The word that Paul uses here means without blame or unaccused. Maybe you've heard people talking about an individual and you've heard them saying a good Northern Irish turn of phrase, you couldn't say a bad word about him. It doesn't mean the person's perfect. It doesn't mean that if you raked over the details of their lives, you couldn't find something. It means that you wouldn't want to. This is a person you admire and respect. It's a person who stands unaccused. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's the basic gist of the other parallel passage we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There he says that an elder should be above reproach, verse 2, and that they should have a good reputation with outsiders, verse 7. Christian leaders are in public view. Their reputation is vital. It used to be in the English Premiership, I I don't hear this so much anymore, but there was a time when it seemed to happen every week. A, A player would be charged with bringing the game into disrepute. I I don't know if you remember hearing that phrase. Whenever we elect elders, we steer clear of anyone who's likely to bring the name, the name of Jesus Christ or the name of his church into disrepute. We learned about that when we studied this letter to Titus a couple of years ago. The church exists to make the gospel beautiful. Elders need to help with that and to contribute to that. Let's keep moving. Once he's dealt with the elders' home life in verses 6 and the first half of verse 7, Paul turns his attention to a second group of qualifications, vices that the elder ought not to possess. Very quickly. They mustn't be overbearing or quick-tempered. That that comes together like a pair. Are you thinking of proposing someone who's bossy, who loves dominating people? Don't do it. We don't want overbearing elders. God's word warns us against it. Are you thinking of proposing someone who you know 
to get angry when they don't get their way. Someone who's quick to throw their toys out of the pram. Don't nominate them. God's word says they're not ready to serve as elders. An elder shouldn't be overbearing or quick-tempered. They mustn't be given to drunkenness or violent. Drunkenness was widespread in, in that sometimes we think we have a monopoly on sins in our generation. It's not true. Drunkenness was widespread in, in Paul's culture. An elder, he says, shouldn't be given to drunkenness. Violence then, as now, is one of the sins that often goes with it. Paul's not saying here that an elder shouldn't have a drink. God's word never teaches that. But he says they mustn't be given to drunkenness. That is condemned right throughout Scripture. They mustn't be pursuing dishonest gain. Do you remember we talked about this last week in 1 Peter? If you have any sense that the person you want to propose might be very excited about becoming an elder, rubbing their hands together, there's some motive, some reason they want to be an elder, prestige, power, whatever it is, be careful. We, we don't want people who are dis pursuing dishonest gain. In verse 8, Paul introduces a third category to his list of criteria for eldership, and these are positive qualities that an elder should possess. Elders must be hospitable. That's interesting, isn't it? Hospitality was absolutely central in the expectations of all Christians in the early church. In Romans 12, Paul urges all believers to practice hospitality. In his first letter, Peter urges disciples of Jesus to offer hospitality to one another. There's a reason why uh, an elder needs to be hospitable. They need to be people who know how to welcome people. Welcome people into the church, welcome people into their lives. If a person has an open home, it's a good sign that they have an open life. It's a quality that we're growing to value increasingly here at Hamilton Road as we grow our network of discipleship groups. Elders welcome people in the name of Jesus. One who loves what is good. Goodness uh, is one of the key themes in Paul's letter to Titus because he knows that God wants our good lives to show his beauty to the world. Elders need to be leading in that. Elders need to be people who have a winsome life that attracts other people to God. One who is self-controlled. This phrase was used in, in the pagan writings of the time it's about the highest standards of behavior. A Christian leader must have at least as high a standard as the, the folks in the culture around us. They must be holy and upright. These two occur regularly together inside of Scripture and outside of it. These two, just one comment on them, I, I think they show us that our duty is both towards other people and towards God. We're to be holy as we relate to the Lord. We're to be upright in our dealings with other people. The word disciplined there, that's the noun form of the last of the fruit of the Spirit 
that we studied last summer in Galatians 5. We translate it in our English Bibles as self-control. Don't propose a person who you know is overly casual or unreliable. A person like that wouldn't be equipped to be an elder for the demands and responsibility of eldership. An elder must be disciplined. After that long list of criteria, we're told about one more duty that falls to any church leader. They must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. To be an elder in the church, a person should be a lover and an upholder of God's word. They need to know it so that they can teach others. They need to know it so they can correct someone who's contradicting it. Let's propose people whose commitment to God is evident in their commitment to his word. By the way, before we try to summarize what these verses teach us, I must point out that this list in Titus 1 isn't exhaustive. The, the similar list in Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 is similar, but it has a couple of differences. Some of our criteria from Titus are left off that list, but two others are added. First of all, an elder shouldn't be a lover of money, Paul says to Timothy. I think we've covered that ground. Secondly, an elder shouldn't be a recent convert. That makes sense too. We're looking for people who are mature in their faith. Sometimes people ask me, Christoph, how old would a person need to be to be an elder? Well, I'm going to say that that's probably not the most important question. It's not the date on a person's birth certificate that's definitive. It's their maturity in Christ. Experience tells me that those two are not related in any sort of a linear way. Sometimes very young people can have an extraordinary level of maturity in Christ. And sometimes people who have had many, many years are still infants in the faith. Bear that in mind. A person we'll propose as an elder will be mature in Christ. Let's bring this to a close. It would be really easy to get lost in the detail. We've seen 15 different ideas, but let's take a step back and see what's going on here. I've come up with a, a modern way of thinking of what we've done these last couple of Sundays. So last week we were thinking in uh, First Peter five, we were thinking about the job description. An elder is to be a shepherd, and, and then we thought about that. This morning, we've been presented with our essential criteria that goes along with the job description. So have a look at this essential criteria. Anyone who's applied for a job recently and has had an essential criteria in their hands, I'm gonna guess that this one looks very, very different. There's no mention of how many GCSEs a person needs to have or whether you need a PhD to be an elder in a church. There's no mention of a person being successful or wealthy. In fact, not a single item on this list talks about abilities or skills. When Paul tells Titus 
what sort of a person he should appoint to be an elder. He's not looking for someone who can do something spectacular. He's looking for someone who is something special. He's looking for people of character rather than ability. Men and women full of the Holy Spirit who uphold God's reputation in the congregation and before a watching world. If we're willing to take God's word seriously here this morning, and I trust that we are, we'll see that godly integrity matters far more than anything else. Before we look at a person's talents, we'll want to see that they're trustworthy and faithful. When you're looking for elders, says God's word, forget about reputation, charisma, and ability. Go for character. The character that only the Holy Spirit can form in likeness to Jesus Christ. Let us pray.